Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respects to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. Well, we're back in lockdown, and if you're anything like me, things have felt pretty claustrophobic. What better time then to be taken away to a world where we were allowed to gallivant about Melbourne and solve mysteries? Catherine Kovacic joined us in June for a conversation with Robin Walton. She took us inside the writing process for her Alex Clayton series, where crimes are solved by a Melbourneian art dealer who's more blundstones and grubby jeans than South Yarra black suit and pearls. And she taught us about some of our forgotten women artists. Plus, there's lots of dogs. We loved it and hope you will too. Enjoy. So good evening, everybody. Uh, My name is Eliza and I'm a community programs officer at Yarra Libraries. And I would like to welcome our special guest speakers and all guests to this special after hours talk. So before we start this evening, I'll do a very, very quick introduction, although I'm sure you're all very familiar already. Um, But uh, Catherine, Uh, Kovacic is a former veterinarian turned art historian who works with a wide variety of museums, galleries and historic houses. Uh, She lives in Melbourne with a borzoi and a Scottish uh, deerhound. (laughs) The portrait of Molly Dean was her debut novel and the first Alex Clayton art mystery which we're going to hear far more about tonight and we also have tonight Robin Walton will be interviewing Robin Walton is the Vice President of Sisters in Crime Australia. She has a PhD in English Literature and Cultural History and has taught in universities in Melbourne and Sydney. She has had short fictions and essays published and is a past winner of the Australian Literary Award. Uh, Robin reviews crime and other books for the Weekend Australian Review, interviews authors for the Sisters in Crime website, their Q&As, and is a judge for two short story awards. Both of you incredible biographies. Um, so now I will turn over to Robin and Megan and I will put ourselves to silent and um, we can't wait to hear um, your in conversation. Thank you, Eliza. Thank you, everybody else too who's tuned in and who's facilitated this gathering. It should be a really nice conversation I'm going to have with Catherine. Catherine, we thought we might start off um, by talking about the context of your crime writing, and that is your long-standing interest in women crime writers. So could you talk a little about that? Sure. Well, I guess I've always read a lot of crime and I, I started with, you know, Sherlock Holmes and sort of the Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler things who always had, you know, they'd have the woman as the femme fatale in the American ones. And of course, Sherlock Holmes had Irene Adler, who was the woman and the, the one woman or the one person really who bested him. And I sort of got interested in why you know women writers sort of as a lead on from there because they write characters very differently so um particularly i think sue grafton and um uh, sarah Peretsky were the first that, that really caught my attention because they gave us those great female protagonists who are really like those those male gumshoe detectives in a way that you know the lone woman sort of solving the crime so vi vashovsky for Peretsky and um, kinsey mahone for sue grafton and so that sort of got me into it and then I started looking at Australian crime and particularly Australian female crime writers. And the obvious one, the early one would be Joan Lindsay. That's probably the one that everybody knows with Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is that great sort of suspenseful book. But we have all these other 
Australian women crime writers from sort of the early, really the golden period of crime writing that, that have just sort of often weren't even published in Australia, were published overseas, um, and that, that are really a bit unknown. So I'm being a, you know, a bit of a, a sort of secondhand bookshop person, I started kind of, you know, grubbing around every chance I got and everywhere I got to sort of look for these authors. And so that would be um, Charlotte J was one of the first ones that, that I became interested in. And that was actually a lead on from those Raymond Chandler things because Charlotte J beat beat the men in 1954 as the first winner of the Edgar Allan Poe, the, the American Crime Writing Awards, with her book Beat Not the Bones. Um, and yet she's really pretty much unknown in Australia. Um, there was a little bit, a few of her books republished in the early 2000s, I think, but beyond that, not much. And then June Wright is the other one, I think, who's really incredible. Her first book, Murder in the Telephone Exchange, came out in, I think, about 1948. And she'd worked in a telephone exchange herself, but that was, she had a female protagonist then, you know, her telephonist, the, the police were a bit bumbling. So that was a really early female, a lone female sleuth, really, who went out and solved the crime. And so I, I kind of had this little thing about these Australian women authors and just sort of looking for some of these older books. Some of them have been reprinted, a lot of them haven't. So I, it's, it's my ongoing quest to track <laughs> down. And there's, there's one of the June rights that I still haven't got, and it's, um, Make Up for Murder, which was, you know, one of her later ones, which had a, a, a nun is the, the sleuth in that, that's which right, is really yes. interesting. So, yeah, so that's, that's still on my list of books to find. But um, I think, yeah, there's that whole, this whole little niche of Australian women crime writers from that period. And then, of course, we've got so many wonderful women today. You know, I think Kerry Greenwood's mm. probably the one that everybody thinks of with Franny Fisher. But, you know, Jane Harper, Emma Biskich, there's so many great women today. But I think my head sort of sits in the past a little bit. So I'm always looking out for those historical books. Yes, they've got wonderful covers too. <laughs> oh, they do, they do. Mm. I've, got, I've got one here. This is one of the oh, actually Charlotte, Charlotte J, but in her other name, Geraldine Hall. So that's... That's one of her fabulous, wow. fabulous early covers. So, yeah. Right. It's just, yeah. And, but some of those 1960s editions where they do those real, like, B-grade movie things, you know, where they, they have a woman, you know, who's screaming and oh, yes. skeleton in the corner and, <laughs> you know, something very dramatic, you know, body over there and, you know, knives coming out of the walls. It's, just, it's great. The, the lurid yeah. covers, are, you know, they're, they're extra fun. I used to collect those for a long time. Yeah. I got a great big wad at a garage sale and they were so lurid eventually. That's it. I, love it. I didn't know whether I could keep them in good conscience. But, <laughs> but I did hear you on a panel talking about Charlotte J, so I know you've got a depth of knowledge, not just a, a fascination, wow. you know. Yeah. And, and could we talk also about, as background again to your fiction, mm -hmm. writing this interest in Australian art or art in general? Yeah, yeah. So um, I've got a degree in art history and I think Australian art, again, is, is particularly the area that interests me. And again, I have to confess to having a little bit of a thing about the sort of the, the forgotten women artists of the, the early 20th century. Um, mm. That's uh, so, but I, I think, gosh, it's, it's all interesting to me, really. So I, I, you know, I like looking, I have absolutely no talent as an artist. So I'm, this is the case of the person who looks, who can't actually do art um, but I think it's you know it's it's such a such a fascinating area just in terms of social history whether you're looking at you know female artists or male artists I think the way we sort of followed on the rest of the world with our art and just what it said about us as a country in well the colonial period too but at the early 20th century just we know post-war the changes in art sort of really reflecting the changes in culture and it's um it's always interesting you know even if it's a you know a little minor unknown artist just just seeing that sort of point of view of you know a, it's like a little snapshot of life really so somehow led into you writing or tackling <laughs> the subject of crime plus art plus Australian right. setting and writing yeah. your first novel can you tell us 
Sure. Well, the first book, which was um, The Portrait of Molly Dean, which is that one there. And um, so Molly Dean, it's based on a true story. Molly Dean was a real person and she was murdered in Melbourne in 1930. And I came across her story uh, when I was actually researching for uh, an exhibition that I was helping to put on at, at Castle Main Art Gallery. Because Molly Dean, although she wasn't an artist, she was the lover of uh, Colin Colohan, who was um, a leading figure in an Australian school called the Meldrum Circle in Melbourne. And um, Molly Dean was his lover for an extended period. She was a school teacher. She was planning on giving up that career and becoming a writer. That was her dream. But in 1930, she was brutally murdered after a night at the theatre. The crime was never solved. And um, I came across this story quite a while ago. And it kind of stuck in my head. You know, I sort of did a little bit of research about her then, but never really did anything with the story. And then later on when I was researching something else about Colin Colohan, I came across her again in a timeline of his career. And it said, 1930, Colin's lover, Molly Dean, brutally murdered. His career briefly stalls. Oh, yeah. And I thought <laughs> that was just such an appalling thing that this talented woman that her life could be reduced to being, you know, not, not even a hiccup. Thought. Yeah. A hiccup, yeah. exactly. Yeah. A hiccup in, in this man's career. So mm. I thought, well, I, I want to do something with this story. But I didn't like the idea of doing a true crime because... Um, because it was unsolved. I thought for me, I, I, I hate books that you get to the end and you don't mm. have a resolution. Um, and the other thing about Molly Dean's story is that most of the files, the police files, the records had been lost, which, you know, inspired all sorts of conspiracy theories as well about were they lost or did someone spirit them away. Mm. So um, I had this idea of essentially writing Molly's story and giving her a resolution. And um, the way I came at that was I, I discovered that Colin Colohan had painted, well, he painted two pictures of Molly Dean. One of them is lost. And that gave me my protagonist, Alex Clayton, an art dealer who comes across this lost portrait, um, realises who the sitter is and goes about finding out a little bit more about the backstory, primarily at first to make a buck. You know, if you've got a nice lurid story, after all, you know, it's going to help sell the painting. But as she researches more, she becomes more involved in the story and she finds someone else's after this painting too and wants to keep the story silent. So uh, the first book has the two timelines. It's Molly Dean's story uh, in the last weeks of her life. And that was something I particularly wanted to do was to effectively give that woman a voice, not to make it a story about woman gets murdered and I wanted to give her a character and a presence and essentially restore, restore her to... to public memory really mm. because it, the fact she doesn't even have her own grave marker she's just sort of mm. you know she's, she's in her father's grave and so it that just that story I wanted to give her a presence again and Alex Clayton gave me a way to do that. Yes and what time did you set Alex's activities? So uh, Alex is set sort of about 1999-2000 and that was particularly for Molly Dean so that gave me um, the chance to have people still alive from the 1930s, albeit elderly, but still around for, for Alex to follow up on and also obviously to, to create a bit of trouble for her. It created a lot of trouble for me because oh. the technology was changing <laughs> so quickly at that time that every little detail, about, you know, what, how much oh. internet did she have a mobile yeah. phone, you know, what browser, but um, it, it works really well just to be able to have that interplay with the two characters and to have the, the sort of the parallel lines of the two independent women um, both trying to make make a success of their lives on their own and to have that play between 1930 and sort of 2000. Yes. So and then as you continued with your Alex character once she got legs, you then really had to take her on from 99 unless you wanted to manufacture a big jump to a 
some other date. That's right. That's right. So we're 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 still sort of just in the the early two thousands now. Right. Um, and and it's 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 been interesting because I obviously I started writing that not anticipating that Alex would be an ongoing character. Uh, it was okay. about it was about doing mm. Molly's story. Um, but then I had, you know, I had Alex very much in my yes. head when I'd finished writing that. Okay. And yeah. the art world is, well, it's a pretty grubby, dodgy little, you know, universe oh. there. There's a lot of sneaky little corners and a lot of dodgy deals and, you know, fakes and forgeries and things getting stolen. And it's, it's really interesting because I keep an eye on the sort of art crime things on the internet and there's okay. something different every week. And I just think, yeah. if I wrote that, nobody would believe it. You know, it's, there, there was, a, you know, a Van Gogh stolen at the start of lockdown and the guy literally rode up on a moped, smashed his way into the, into the museum and walked out with it under his arm and it's all on CCTV. And he's just like, no one would believe that actually happened. It was too easy. And then just last week, um, the painting appeared in a, like a proof of life thing with the, the current newspaper next oh, to the painting okay. just, and oh. they've ransomed it. So okay. it's, it, it's just like, and then nuns, you know, stealing artifacts from the church and sort of selling them on the black market to raise money for their, their chapel. It's like, wow. Okay. <laughs> interesting. But yeah, so it's, it, there's so much. And I think I've sort of got Alex in my head telling me all these dodgy little yes. stories. So there's plenty of material. Uh, so you got enough feedback or reception from the first one to think, yes, I'll continue with Alex. And Absolutely. So what happened in the second novel? Uh, in the second novel, which is uh, Painting in the Shadows, hang on a sec, which is this one, um, Alex is in the Melbourne International Museum of Art, which is a little bit like the National Gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, and following on from Molly Dean, which had a, you know, a large element of sort of a, a true story in it, the, the ironic part is that the only true story in Painting in the Shadows is the part about the painting with the curse, which seems like it would be the most outlandish part. But in Painting in the Shadows, um, there is a painting that is cursed that is badly damaged when a worker collapses under mysterious circumstances. And Alex is in the gallery when this happens, as is her best friend and sort of sidekick, John Porter, who is a conservator. So John is called on to help restore this painting, but the person that he was supposed to be assisting turns up dead in front of the easel the next day. So there's a, a lot for them to work oh. out in the confines of the gallery to work out who's killed who, why they're killing who, and, uh, yeah, exactly what's going on there. Yes, it, it's a rather closed world, isn't it? They're inside it's, this simulacrum of the um, NGV. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a very tight setting, mm. that one. So, yeah. Yeah. In Melbourne, yes. Yes, mm. I've been in the conservation room there, which is very large, but it does have those large large windows but I don't think you even gave yours windows no no I didn't I didn't I wanted to I really wanted to have quite a claustrophobic sense in that one Mm, it had it I think yes it's Mm. great which leads us does it not to book three which is we've advertised as the one we're going to talk about the most so I thought people who were new to you might like to know the background so of course so that's that's, uh, the shifting landscape Mm. which um gave me a chance to get Alex and John and I should mention Alex's dog, Hogarth, because Hogarth has his own little fan club, to get them out of the city and into Victoria's Western District. Um, so in, in the shifting landscape, Alex is called on to value um, a family's collection at a historic sheep property called Kinlock in the Western District. And when she gets there, she finds a very valuable forgotten colonial painting, but she also finds a family that's um, in quite a bit of turmoil. And then the patriarch dies under mysterious circumstances. And the painting also goes missing. So Alex's first thought, as would be anyone's, is I'm getting out of here and I'm going home. 
but then uh, the youngest child of the family also disappears and Alex's dog goes missing, which is probably the kicker for her. So she uh, remains on the property and John is there because he had to come to conserve a painting, obviously, looking for the dog, looking for the child and looking for the painting and hopefully trying to resolve all that and stop someone else from being killed and um, basically solve the mystery. Again, could I advance the idea that that's a closed world mystery, almost an Agatha Christie or a cold? Yes, yes, very much so. So it's uh, it's almost the manor house mystery transported mm. from rural England to uh, outback Australia. So in the back of Hamilton, really, isn't it? Yes, that that's right. Wonderful yeah. sort of it's yeah. beautiful countryside. Yeah. Yes, wonderful country. Yeah. Yes. So in fact, that house you call Kinlock. Now, I know within Melbourne there are a few old houses called Kinlock, and of course, it's also a name going back to Scotland. Mm. So. Can you talk a little bit about that Scots presence in history? Sure. So the, the Scots had a, a huge presence. There was a large Scottish um, migrant community came out in the early 1800s and particularly as a farming community, um, they, they brought out a lot of their livestock. So, we, you know, we had Highland cattle here quite early on and, and sort of Scottish breeds of dogs and what have you. But um, particularly in the Western District, there was a big push of Scots and obviously English through that country uh, and it was very much you know a first come best dressed situation as far as the white settlers were concerned you know if you could get there first you could claim the land and away you went and that's the the Kinlock family which are the Macmillans um, have this history um, they were there from sort of pretty much the, the 1840s and very wealthy family um, sheep sheep property so the you know the early the 1800s wool boom and then obviously the boom of the early 20th century there's a lot of money in the family. They have this wonderful sort of essentially a, like a Scottish baronial mansion that they've, you know, recreated in the, the Australian countryside um, and several generations of the family there. And um, I think particularly with that, that heritage, that, that idea of ownership is, is very important. It's a thread that runs, you know, who owns the land and, and yeah. Four or five years ago, you may have seen at the Ballarat Gallery, there was a large exhibition of the Scottish heritage of that area with the art and artefacts. Yes, I, I, yes. I, I presented at the, con the conference. I was presenting at the conference that went with that and I, I wrote a paper that is in the, um, the, the Scots, Scots book that, that went with that text ah, as well. So okay. On, um, actually on, on Scottish animals that, that were brought out. Oh. Yeah. What were they? Well, the, we had the Highland cattle, we had various breeds of sheep, um, several dogs, salmon was an early one that they actually brought out. Yes. Salmon fishing was very important. So, um, yeah, so it, it, was, uh, it was a huge part of them to, to essentially, you know, recreate as much as they could of, of their country. And, of course, some of the Scottish breeds, you know, did very well in, in regional Victoria, the, the, the cattle and the sheep and in Tasmania, you know, they were suited to that countryside. But um, it was, yeah, and it was very much sort of a trial and error thing. But, um, yes, it was a great exhibition too. Mm. Now, the artist whose painting is really worth value in this story of yours, who is that and why did he paint in that area? Yeah, so that was um, Eugène von Girard and the painting that I've invented a painting for the purposes of this, but von Girard was an Austrian painter. He came out to Australia in uh, the 1850s. He thought he was going to make a fortune on the gold fields, but he didn't. Uh, so he returned to his painting. He was very well trained and he started off basically the way he made most of his money. He did go on a few sort of geological exploratory expeditions, but the way he made most of his money was touring the Western District and painting commission pictures for these wealthy squatocratic families. And his speciality was landscapes. So what a lot of his paintings from that period and that area are, are what we sort of call um, a house portrait. So it's essentially the house in the landscape. And again, this is, so this is showing, you know, 
showing your power and your might. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because this this tradition of this style of painting comes from England where we see, you know, houses like Petworth or Chatsworth or something like that, and it's the big house that dominates the whole picture mm-hmm. with, you know, people in the foreground. But because Australia was more about the vastness of the land you owned, most of these paintings are a house set in this swathe of countryside. And Von Girard had some geological knowledge as well, so his backgrounds are actually really interesting because they're very, very accurate in terms of, you know, Mount Elephant down in that area uh, and the, the undulations of the land and um, some sort of the stony, the geographical and the, um, the, the sort of the volcanic features of that area too. So he's interesting from that point of view, but he's also interesting for the detail that he puts in in terms of the people and in this case the Indigenous people of the area. Yes, Ruth Pullen's the great expert, I think. On that's right. Yes, she is. She's done the book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So mentioning Indigenous, you have one Indigenous character, but of course there were overlays of history before those Scots, shall we say, invaders or settlers. So can you talk a bit about what came before? Yeah. So um, the that area, um, the main Indigenous peoples there are the Gunditjmara people, and the landscape is particularly important for them and historically for all of us because um, of the volcanic landscape and at least 7,000 years ago uh, the Gunditjmara people carved out of this volcanic landscape uh, essentially an aquaculture enterprise. So it's an uh, extensive eel trapping system. There are weirs, there are little flows and funnels, uh, ponds for growing small elvers into larger eels and um, it's so this entire and also habitation. So there are the, the mm. remnants of, of little round buildings, um, often in clusters that probably had had sort of you know um, uh, leaves, uh, sort of thatch type roofs. But this very and last year it was um, actually recognised on the, um, the the UNESCO World Heritage List as a site of significance. So that's actually the first Indigenous landscape to be recognised uh, on that list, which is, you know, really wonderful and really significant. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating part of the countryside. But mm. so in my book, In the Shifting Landscape, this idea of dispossession and ownership is, is layered through with the Gunditjmara people, with the Macmillan family on their property and the various generations of the Macmillan family because, of course, as with most farming families and particularly with this, this sort of idea that was taken from, from Britain is that, one person gets to inherit everything because mm. you can't break up the farm, you can't break up the property because then you can't make money from it. So that's that's sort of what what plays into the tensions within the family. It continues to this generation, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Stories, yes, yes just right. difficult yeah. seven years. Yeah. Of course, Bruce Pascoe's writing has tapped right into that heritage, which we've not paid so much attention to. No, that's right. Maybe the last yeah. few decades, yes. Yeah. yeah. Where should we go with talking about your book? What else would you you like to tell us about the, oh. the novel itself? I think I think we have to talk about Hogarth, which is okay. um, Alex, right. Alex's, yeah, <laughs> Alex's Irish wolfhound. Um, so Hogarth, uh, I, I hadn't anticipated that Hogarth would have such a presence, but um, with, with my sort of background, I chose the breed specifically for Alex as kind of a reflection of her personality. So as an Irish wolfhound, he's a big grey shaggy dog, so he looks a bit intimidating, but he's actually a big softy. Um, and he, he gives her someone to interact with because the way the books are written, you know, she's, she's a bit of a loner. So that gives us a little bit of an insight into her character, the way she responds to him. But also I think having that type of dog tells you something about the person she is. Because if, if I'd given her a golden retriever, for example, or, a, you know, a little like a handbag chihuahua or a white fluffy, 
you automatically form a very different mm. impression of the person or a Rottweiler. You know, you form a very different impression of the person because of the dog that's next to them. So Hogarth, his breed was chosen quite specifically, um, but I hadn't anticipated that he'd kind of develop his own little fan club. Fan club. So, yeah, um, okay. yeah in, in um, painting in the shadows, which, as we said, was in that very closed gallery environment, you know, Hogarth had to basically stay home. He had to stay home except for And I, I, got, I, got compl- <laughs> I got complaints about that. Yes. It's like there wasn't enough dog yes. in the book. Yes. So um, going to the countryside obviously gave us gave me a lot more scope for for Hogarth to to have some have some action and to have some things going on there. But, he becomes um, almost inseparable from him, isn't he? He goes well, everywhere and there's no, that's, that's no right. um, negotiation. He just comes. <laughs> that's it. We're in the country. He can go. So that's, that's good. But yes, he, I think then, of course, then Alex gets very panicky about what's going on with Hogarth. <laughs> but my publishers actually made me set up a Facebook page for the dog, which, you know, just sort of gave me headache because the, the dog is a, he is a dog. He doesn't speak. You know, when Alex talks to him, he just, you know, goes back to sleep. Um, and I was like... I, what what's the dog going to do on Facebook? And they're just like, no, no, trust us, make a Facebook page for the dog. And it's it's really interesting. So he has his oh. little Facebook following. And if I put a post on my author page, you can sort of get one or two likes, you know, maybe in 24 hours. And if you put the same post on Hogarth's page, it's like, you know, everyone's on there and there's like 50 oh, likes in five minutes and it's Hogarth gets a lot of love. Um, and, and, and someone actually said to me, you're going to have to do a spin-off series with the dog as the main character. So I'm not quite sure that that's going to happen. But, um, well, L.A. Larkin, if you don't have heard of the thriller, yes, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. A second bow, which is Monty, your dog. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. But I, I, also, I also teach um, dog training classes oh, on, the, okay. sort of on weekends and um, I've, I've had some of my dog training people say to me, they, they get very excited if Hogarth interacts with other dogs, you know, if there's a dog park scene. And, and they said, that border collie in the dog park scene, that's my dog, isn't it? I was like, of course. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, that's definitely, definitely your dog. All the this way. This is very good advice for any would-be writers listening. And don't worry that's about it, the characters. That's it. Just have a dog. Put a, put a dog in there. Put a dog in there. So, yes, I, I think that, that will be, you know, my next charity thing will be I'll, I'll, I'll auction off I will write your dog into the next uh, book. Oh, okay. Hogarth, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you must have some sort of image of Hogarth that you pop up on screen, or do you- yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yeah. I, I I have a have a friend now who has an Irish Wolfhound, so I, I have sort of a, a stunt double for Hogarth, and um, and we we have some fun sort of photoshopping him into different situations. So yeah, I've got bit- glimpsed one or two, but I haven't. I must admit, I haven't yeah. Hogarth's so <laughs> no. age to find out. That- <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I will. <laughs> if we were recording this at my place, I see dogs behind you, and if yes. this were mine, I have dog bookends behind my. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you can guess I like cat gas. <laughs> I think you have any other questions I did like to ask you. We've got a few more minutes before we go to the yeah, sure. But um, relationship with John, I suppose. I heard you in, in another interview. You just described Alex's love life as dodgy. <laughs> in fact, it's very nuanced and. Tight touching the way it's going. Can you tell us? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so as I mentioned earlier, if you haven't read the books, John Porter is a conservator. He's and he's Alex's best friend. They've been long term friends. He's involved in a. He's married, so he's involved in a very messy, um, protracted separation, leading towards a divorce. I should say. Um, and so he and Alex have. 
they've probably had something going on in the past before he got married, but you know, maybe not. I don't know. And there is, um, there's a, a, always a little bit between the two of them. Um, I think, you know, John keeps saying, well, I'm getting separated. And I was like, mm, are you really? But because they're such good friends, I think there's always that, you know, that danger of stepping from mm. the friend zone into, you know, a relationship and ruining things. So, um, and I think that you know, things do amp up just a tiny bit in the shifting landscape. Yes, that's true. Yeah. yeah um, so, yeah, whether it's going to go further, I can't really tell you. <laughs> so it was more banter. He was a little bit of a larrikin maybe early on and now he's more... more yes. More, yeah, well, what, I, more? I, I think he's big, it's where he is in his, his own in his, relationship. His own think, self, yeah. Yes. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, it's difficult. Mm. Yes. And, and we get quite a lot of personal stuff about really what they eat or don't eat. Or yeah. All these sorts of <laughs> John, yeah, well, John's one of those annoying people who can eat and not put on any weight. So that, that sort of becomes an ongoing issue for Alex, I think. That he yes, does. he's got the sweet tooth. That's we, right. Yeah. We got Patterson's yeah. cakes because, of course, that was still <laughs> yes. going in those yes. days. And, yes. <laughs> and they go into Hamilton's for a sugar fix in some. Little cafe, which yeah, is, well, I, I think for, for me, country towns, you know, we used to travel a lot when I was a kid and country towns were always, there would be a bakery where they would invariably have some sort of award-winning, you know, vanilla slice or ninish mm. tart or something. There would be a pub where you could have a counter meal and there would invariably be a strange sort of Chinese-Australian restaurant that was, you know, like a Chinese restaurant but not, you know, there'd be a very lurid sort of looking sweet and sour pork and so it was this kind of weird fusion. Mm. And so I think for me there's, there's I can't, the bakery is always something about a country town bakery. I think. And do you want to finish with any hints about where Alex might be going? Oh, yes. Well, um, the next one, we're back in Melbourne mm -hmm. um, but uh, not in a closed space. So we're out and about... Um, yeah, so we're, we're looking at a bit of sporting art this time because Melbourne is a very sporting sort of oh, city. So, true, yeah. Yes. So, um, and, oh, yeah, I think, yeah, things, things do develop a little bit more in Alex's um, personal life. So I won't yeah. say any more than that. It sounds like a Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we must talk for other um, states as well, of course. Yes. Sport yes. and Melbourne do seem to go together. Yes, well, I think it, 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 is, yeah. it is. It's just a nice backdrop, you know. Alex, uh, Alex isn't a very sporty person herself, but you know, sporting art is a, is a nice little oh, little course, subset yes. subset to, for her to sort of get involved. Indeed, in. yes, yeah. and it's in the auctions, isn't it? All that memorabilia. Oh and yes, camera right. and so yeah. on. Yes. So yes, yeah. you've got lots of scope there. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Well, I think we're almost ready for questions. If facilitators hmm. uh, have some questions ready. So is the Scottish house in your latest book based on a particular house or houses? No, it's not. It's not. It's a it's complete fabrication. Okay, so the next question mm -hmm. is with Molly Dean, did you have any issues with using real people? Did you contact descendants, for example? Um, there are some, some descendants of her brother and uh, they... Um, don't they 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 just sort of don't don't want to to talk about the story which is fine so mm -hmm. i was very mindful of the fact that i was dealing with a real person and um with molly dean's story um i've there's a, a sort of extended section at the back that tells you which which if any characters i've, I've made up for my story and what the true situation was and her storyline follows exactly what we know of the last weeks of her life um, and interactions with real people that she had are the interactions that we know about. So 
the only things that I, I have not sort of, you know, dumped anything on anyone who was a, a real person or, mm. you know, made her have any sort of false interactions in that way. So, yes, oh, I was fantastic. very, very mindful of the fact that, that I was dealing with her and that was, as I said, it was her story that I wanted to highlight. Mm -hmm. So I was quite respectful of that. Can I okay, ask something great. related to that? Mm, yeah. Uh, Gideon Hay coincidentally brought out a sort of non-fiction book about mm -hmm. her. Yeah. How did you feel about his speculations? Wow, that's really hard. I think it, it was a very difficult story because the, you know, the police got very fixated on this and there has been a lot of speculation, you know, in terms of um, the, the disappearing files and things like that, you know, was there sort of, you know, was she sort of supposedly involved with someone in a powerful position who wanted it all to go away and things like that. So I think it's, um, it's, it's always interesting to speculate, but as I said, I think that's, that's, that's the really hard thing that, that we've, we've sort of, people have looked at that sort of over the years. And, um, I think we really, you could sort of, you could look at people within her story and you could think, well, it could, could have been that person or it could have been that person. And I think there's also things in there you think, well, perhaps they didn't kill her, but they were still hiding something. You know, there's sort of all sorts of odd little nuances within that story. So I think there was, there was several different people that you could have pointed the finger at in terms of yeah. who actually killed her. And I think her, her, the way she was killed, it did, it did feel like it was a, it was a personal, personal attack. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think the fact that someone was effectively lying in wait for her, you know, it was, it was too much of a coincidence that she's, you know, walking home after, you know, after midnight that particular route and, and, you know, just happens to encounter someone, you know, lurking, lurking around the corner. I think it was definitely someone known to her who killed her. And there were, you know, there were only two or three people that could have really been involved there. Okay. So the next question is, how do you account for the missing evidence in the Molly Dean case and why was the crime unsolved? Um, I think the, two, the crime was unsolved. I'll start, start with that. I think the police went really hard after one person and, um, there was sort of some evidence that, that really sort of made it look like him. And I think some of it was perhaps circumstantial. Um, some of it was actually really good evidence. But um, I think the files disappeared really probably just, they were probably misfiled, I think. Yeah, so yeah some of it turned up, some of it didn't. But, um, you know, a lot of files were, were purged. But, oh, it's, it's really hard. I think, you know, you could start looking at the police force too from that period because there was a lot of, you know, odd stuff going on with the mm -hmm. police and how they were operating and, you know, suggestions that and not the particular officers involved here, but, you know, there was things like, you know, drug running and a car rebirthing racket and, you know, bribes and backhanders and then we'd just get onto the whole thing about the chief of police, you know, being caught in a brothel. But we were blamey. That was blamey, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so all sorts of things going on there um, and then you know there's a they had a very um, new version of a dog squad there which was really in its infancy and um, and one of the guys from the, the dog squad years later in the 1950s just you know not long before he died said we were around the corner with the dogs and we were there within 10 minutes and they wouldn't let us let the dogs out to see if oh, we could track this oh, person wow. down uh -huh. and and he was he said if they'd let us release the dogs I'm sure we would have caught Molly Dean's killer so there's all sorts of odd little nuances within the story that just sort of make yeah there was yeah there's there's more to the story Okay, so uh, did you have a sensitivity reader or other assistance with the Indigenous aspects of the last book that you did? Yeah, um, I, I certainly I was down in Hamilton and um, I sort of visited the sites and I spoke to um, one of the Indigenous guides down there, but also um, I spoke to several other Indigenous people about um, being on country and connection to land 
Um, Because, yes, again, that was something that I was very concerned about, being respectful to that. And not not telling that story because that's not my story to tell. Um, so it was really uh, sort of introducing that theme and that story and that landscape to the readers um, for mm. them to explore more for themselves. If you were surprised with the idea of a Facebook page for Hogarth, what fictional character, yours or other, would you like to see a face page, a Facebook page for? Wow. Sorry, <laughs> goodness, <laughs> wow. I got through it. <laughs> That's, That's a good one. I don't know. It's really hard because, you know, there's so many people who do fan sites and things now that I think I'd, I'd probably like to see someone like, you know, um, a Philip Marlowe Facebook page, you know, one of those 1940s noirish gumshoe guys, you know, I could just with those really pithy comments about everything. You know, <laughs> just, yeah, just I, I think that would be, that would be really good just to have that, that really sort of dry raw stuff and, you know, gl- ice cubes tinkling in a glass. Oh, this years ago, it was uh, Hogarth named because of the artistic connection. Absolutely, yes, it mm-hmm. was. Yeah. Can you tip us off to any particular Melbourne locations that will feature in future books the way the NGV did in your second? Oh, okay. Let me think about that. Um, Are you allowed to do that? I, I can. I just want to give too much away. Okay, so let's see. There's a well, there's a pub down in Albert Park. Flemington, Flemington Race Course, obviously we're doing okay. sporting okay. one. Uh, probably won't take it more than there, I think, at the moment. So I think that's almost our last question. May I ask a very quick question? Mm-hmm. So uh, I wanted to ask who was your favourite um, forgotten female artist? You said either 19th or 20th century. Did you have a favourite artist? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, I think um, Isabel Ray, Iso Ray, is one of my favourites. So um, she she was an Australian artist. She went to France and she was there um, during the First World War. And so she, she painted a lot of European scenes, but particularly a lot of um, uh, camp scenes of the men at war. And they're, they're just such beautiful. They're almost sort of impressionistic and quite quite sort of lovely little Mm-hmm. studies but there's so many so um jesse trail would be another one so she she sort of did more um wood prints and things um she's she's sort of been recognized a bit more now and Paris beckett's probably the one everybody knows and she was actually associated with colin coulahan and that circle that that molly dean came from so sorry you'll get me started on no yeah it's always good to hear i love it uh, so how does your art research impact uh, your approach to your fiction writing? Well, it, it depends. So I, I always try, I, like I don't want to, you know, art has to be there because that's Alex's world as an art dealer. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't sort of want to, you know, hit readers over the head with paintings or with, you know, massive, you know, artistic, la-di-da kind of discussions about, you know, painting technique or the artist's motivation or something like that. So um, for going to the Western District, you know, Eugene Bongerard was there. He was straight away because that was that was where he was. But it's it just sort of it depends on the environment they're in. So in painting in the shadows, obviously you can just go nuts in a kind of NGV kind of environment and happen. Mm. And and that sort of for me, Alex's world is she almost thinks in painting. So she sees things that remind her of you know all that looks a bit like a still life by someone or other, or you know that that person looks a bit like you know the Pope has painted by whatever so it, it sort of it infuses the way she looks at the world so sometimes I go in and I have paintings that I think well that's going to be there because that's like with Montgerard that's a particular part of the story 
but sometimes I don't know until we get to a certain point and, and mm -hmm. there's a character or something happens to Alex and I just think, oh, you know, there's a painting there, you know, so it, it, just, sort of, it just sort of filters into the background of her world. And then, of course, we have some paintings where she's, she's dealing, you know, she's, she's buying or selling or whatever. And so sometimes I, I like to sneak my little women artists in there and just sort of, you know, wave them in front of the audience so that they can go and go, ooh, who's that? And, and go and have a look at that. That's my, my hope. Um, and sometimes it might just be a matter of who were um, the big selling artists, you know, of those, those sort of years so that, you know, mm -hmm. Alex thinks she's going to be able to do a good deal if she can buy that one cheap and turn it over. So it's, it's just, it just sort of depends on where we are in the story and, and what's going on. Do you ever have to do additional research to find all the prices? And even though you, you have a, like a very strong background in that area, do you still need to do a lot of research? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, you know, sometimes I just, you know, I've, I've had a couple of times I just think I want to put a painting here, but I've got no idea if, if you know, the right sort of thing exists. So I sort mm. of have to, to go away. But, but certainly in terms of prices there, are, you know, there are sort of the, the lovely sort of thing called the Art Sales Digest, which, you know, charts all the auction prices through the years. And so that's, that's just beautiful because you can just go back and there we are. And you can sort of, you can see where the prices really dive. So that's really nice because then Alex can have these moments where she's thinking, well, I'm going to buy that one because mm. I think. That, that's an artist up and coming or I've got to get rid of this now because <laughs> out of out of favor out of favor so, yeah. why and how did you make your career change do you miss being a vet oh okay so um I took what I did was I took six months off which um to help out in the family business which was completely unrelated to, to veterinary medicine and um but being the sort of family that we were you know you, you know how you grow up in the family business and so I sort of knew it inside out so I thought well they need some help. So six months, no problem. And that became three years. And um, while, while I was doing that, I thought, well, uh, I'd never done any art sort of subjects because I'd always been doing that sort of science sort of veterinary mm. track. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just go and, you know, audit a couple of subjects at Melbourne Uni and that stuff that I never got to do because in those days you could kind of literally go and just sit in the back of a lecture theatre and just follow along, mm. which, you know, you can't do that anymore. And then, of course, being me, I thought, well, while I'm here, I may as well get credit for it because, you know, what am I doing here? Um, and so sort of sitting in the back of a lecture theatre turned into a master's degree, which turned into a PhD. <laughs> oh, um, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, and then, then I sort of, I, I do miss, I do miss aspects of veterinary medicine. I don't miss the crazy hours. I don't miss having a pager. Mm. Um, and I don't miss the emotional side of it because I'm, you know, I, I do like animals. And so I, I find I get very involved with the people and the animals and that, that gets quite draining. Mm. So, um, and the, the segue, I guess the segue moment was that I did, actually did my PhD on the representation of animals in art and the human animal bond represented in art. So I kind of sort of merged the my, oh, my professional behavioural yeah. knowledge into, into the art side of things. And it was really interesting because, of course, the art people at first went, you're the vet. And then, then the next thing was, so what, dogs playing <laughs> poker? You know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was really interesting. And, but, yeah, so I found that quite fascinating because, for me, the thing was, well, these people don't know what those animals, you know, they, they were like, yeah. well, a dog in a painting is a sign of, you know, valour and, you know, marital fidelity unless it's a sign of sexual lasciviousness. It's like, yeah, can't have it both ways, folks. I'm sorry. So it was, yeah, that was, that was my sort of crossover in, from, from veterinary medicine to art history. Oh, I like that. It feels transgressive. <laughs> oh, this is a good one too. Can you envision a future TV adaption much like Franny Fisher? 
Oh my goodness. Um, yes. I, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think, I think Alex certainly lends herself to it. I don't know, you know, Molly Dean would always be a hard one to do because it's a dual timeline mm. sort of thing. Mm. Um, and I think that, but I think Alex is, and particularly having that sort of colourful art world, um, she's, she's very much, she's, she's got that kind of gritty personality. You know, she's not a, a black suit and pearls in a South Yarra mm. gallery kind of art dealer. She's a blundstone boots and grubby jeans kind of girl. So I think, yeah, I think she'd be quite a fun character to see on the screen. So I've missed one question, so we're just going to circle back. Mm-hmm. Um, if the shifting landscape was a take on the country house murder plot, do you have any other classic crime book tropes you're, uh, you're keen to put Alex Clayton in? I think, I think the, um, the isolated protagonist is always a really interesting thing, but I don't know, that sort of doesn't lend itself to the art world. So I've, I've always got to keep the art world in the back of my mind. Um, but um, I haven't really thought about it from that perspective, so thank you. That was an edited recording of Catherine Kovacic talking about her latest novel, The Shifting Landscape. It might be locked down, but we're still running regular author talks online, as well as our popular short story club, so please keep an eye on our website. If you're keen to read The Shifting Landscape or any of Catherine's mysteries, you can borrow the ebooks from Cloud Library using your library membership details. In the meantime, we'll be staying inside while we wait for the chance to sleuth our way around the city once more.